we're in a series, this is week two, uh, entitled World Religions in Seven Sentences, and draw, uh, drew that title um, and these seven sentences from a book of that exact same title uh, by Dr. Douglas Groteis, um, his most recent book. And that's one of my book recommendations on there. There's a number of other ones. One, another rec- recommendation that I put um, on here that I would encourage you to um, look at is the Bible Project has a series of videos. If you go to BibleProject.com and you go to their theme videos, they have a whole, there's, I don't know, there's like six of them or something called Spiritual Beings. And much of what we talked about last week and what we're going to kind of conclude, finish up talking about tonight is, is addressed in a little bit different way of learning through this Spiritual being series. So that's sort of just a fun, easy way to learn is watching a short little explainer video. So I encourage you to look at those. But the series that we're looking at, what were uh, world religions in seven sentences, we're taking seven sentences re- representing these seven different world religions and saying, if, if you could kind of boil this religion down to its kernel, what might be a concept around which the whole understanding of this worldview or of this particular religion that I can sort of like understand that I can get a radar fix on it. So it's a good way to... Um, it's an easy access way to it. And so again, I mentioned this last week, but for those of you who weren't here, atheism, the sentence is God is dead. Judaism, I am who I am. Hinduism, you are that. Buddhism, life is suffering. Taoism, the Tao that can be spoken is not the eternal Tao. Islam, there is one God and Muhammad is his prophet. And Christianity before Abraham was born I am. And so these are these kernels that we're going to be kind of looking at, exploring to say, I want to understand this particular religion, especially in light of um, having a Christian commitment in a Christian worldview. Last week, um, we, we started, and what I wanted to do is I said, before we jump into the particular religions or worldviews, I want us to understand uh, sort of what's the backstory. And so we spent all of last time, and it's online if you, uh, we didn't get it up until yesterday, so if you looked and couldn't find it, it's up now. Um, But I would encourage you to jump on and watch uh, last week's message, because it really, it gives the origin story. You guys like origin stories? I love like movies where there's origin stories. It's like Batman or Superman, like how'd they get started, right? it's, It's the origin story of why are there many religions, If there's only one creator, God, and we assert there is, how is it that there are many religions and many gods? And so we went to the origin story in the Bible to say, how are we to understand that? And so we looked at this origin story, that this idea that um, multiple religions, this really had its origin at the Tower of Babel. And the origin is when God finally uh, is, is so fed up with humanity's insistence on rebellion, he, he divorces himself from them, distances himself from humans. He divides them up and he assigns to them, to these different groups, members of his divine council. And then we learn that at some point, these members of his divine council rebelled against the most high God. They began to solicit worship 
from the people they were just told to govern. They began to exploit rather than take care of the people they were governing. And that sort of sets up this entire story. And, and, you know, again, we said that's where Daniel gets this concept of prince of Persian, prince of these supernatural beings. It's where Paul gets his language of principalities, powers, rulers of the air. So we saw kind of the origin story there. And then the coming of the Messiah, when he comes through his death and resurrection, he, he rips away the authority that had been given to those supernatural beings who became rebellious and he took their legitimacy away. And so when he sends out his disciples, he starts by reminding of that. Remember Matthew 28, all authority in heaven and earth in the unseen realm and the seen realm, it's been given to me. In light of that reality, I want you to go to those nations that got divorced in the Old Testament and tell them, hey, guess what? Your God no longer has authority. They're illegitimate. And the most high God is calling you back into his family. He's reclaiming the nations. And so we said, that's the gospel message. If anyone ever said, what's the gospel message? It's simply telling that story that the most high God has acted in the person of Jesus, taking away the authority of the dark powers. And now he wants you back in his family. That's the gospel message. So we saw this origin story of the various religions. And then this is important because as we look at different religions, we have to realize there's a spiritual backdrop, according to the Bible, behind any attempt that is not worship of the most high God. There's spiritual reality behind it. The gods of the nations. And then we also, this is what we're kind of turning to tonight. Next week, we're going to pick up on the first of the seven sentences. Tonight, what I want to do is conclude exploring what's the nature of that spiritual reality behind religions, behind religious practices, um, behind world religions, behind the cults, behind the occult. Those are all spiritual activities. And according to the Bible, there's spiritual reality behind it. And so we want to understand that. So our, our title for tonight is Additional Spiritual Forces Behind Religious and Occult Practices. We have to understand who and what the other dark, malevolent, intelligent forces are, aside from those gods of the nations that we learned about at Babel. There's more guys. <laughs> There's more forces. <clears throat> Let me give you one caveat before we go, go down this road. C.S. Lewis, uh, many of you are probably familiar with the book that he wrote called Screwtape Letters. It's this imaginary uh, dialogue between a senior devil and a younger devil. And they're writing back and forth about how to win this person who's close to converting to Christianity and, and how you can trip them up and all this sort of thing. At the beginning of it, Lewis writes this. There are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devils, the dark malevolent powers. One is to disbelieve in their existence. The other is to believe and feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. They, that is the devils, they themselves are equally pleased 
by both heirs. And they held the materialist, that's the person that doesn't believe him at all, and the magician with the same delight. And I think that's a, a point for us in, in this sort of study. We always do it at, a, at a, a, almost a bit of a distance. We have to be careful that this doesn't become an obsession, something that you look into too much, that you're too fascinated by the powers of darkness because they're seductive. And so we, we are very careful how we do it. We use scripture and then a number of things that we'll talk about tonight. But does that make sense? Just sort of a caveat, like, because again, some people are like weirdly interested. Oh, this is really interesting. I want to look into it. Well, not too much, <laughs> not too much, but you need to be aware. The apostle Paul, let me go to um, 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 10. This will be up on the screen. 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 10. The apostle Paul, he writes this. This is really interesting. Um, he, he's, I'm not going to give you his whole argument, but just the part that's highlighted. He says, it's possible to be outwitted by Satan and be ignorant of his designs, of his plans. This is a real possibility in Paul's mind, apparently. It's possible for the believer to be outwitted by the powers of darkness and to be unaware of schemes and plans that are being set up for you, <laughs> okay? So that's the balance. We don't want this to become an obsession, and yet Paul says, you need to be aware, you need to be aware of the players and what the game plan is. Does that make sense? And what's going on? So that's what I want us to do as we're leaning <clears throat> into this. So different from the gods of the nations that we looked at last week, there's a second group the demons. Uh, when you read the New Testament, the demons of the New Testament, these spirits Jesus interacts with, people interact with, they're dark, malevolent forces. What's their origin story? <laughs> That's what I want us to see briefly. What's the origin story of those spiritual dark powers? Because they're part of what's going on behind the curtain, and again, we need to be aware of the players, though not too too terribly interested in it. <clears throat> Commonly, people would say, "Oh, demons are fallen angels." That's sort of folk theology. Um, no, the Bible does not teach that demons are fallen angels. There's there was no Jewish uh, tradition back in the first century that believed that demons were fallen angels. This other group of dark players in religion and occult practices, their origin story predates the Tower of Babel, predates the assignment of the nation of the gods to the nations, actually predates that, and it goes back even further of the gods of the nations. It goes back to Genesis chapter 6. I'm going to read for you Genesis 6, verses 1 through 4. We read, this should be up on the screen here. When man began to multiply on the face of the land and the daughters were born to them, the, what's the title here? We, sons of God. We came across this language last week. Oh, these are members of God's divine council. Okay, his spiritual imagers who are on his payroll. The sons of God, saw that the daughters of men 
were attractive. They took as many as their wives as they chose. So now this is their rebellion moment. (laughs) They're no longer on God's payroll. They have rebelled. Um, Then Yahweh said, my spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. And then, so we learn to the sons of God, the daughters of men, the byproduct of that is this next group here in verse four, the Nephilim. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterwards when the sons of God came into the daughters of men and they bore children to them. This is the, now who thinks that's weird? I am right there with you. I think it's absolutely bizarre. But here's the point, okay? Here's what you have to be tracking with. The origin story of these Nephilim, these characters, and, and they get worked out in their stories. All, you know, We're not going to dive deep into that. They have a super, supernatural origin. You get that? That's what you're supposed to see. These guys, these Nephilim, and we find out they're the giant clans. Uh, Moses attempts to wipe them. God tells Israel, I need you to wipe these guys out. They're not, this is, this is not just a human thing. There's a supernatural origin to these beings and I want them wiped out. They're malevolent, they're dark. And so Moses is tasked with that. Um, Joshua's tasked with that. Finally, do you remember the last guy? It's like one of your, your kids' stories that you heard. David and, yeah, finally finishes the job. Okay, but this is this ongoing story here. And so um, what we have is these sons of God who rebelled, who transgressed a boundary, did this evil thing with women, produced their own imagers. Think about that. God has his imagers. They're creating their own. Okay, we find out God sends them to the abyss and locks them there. They can't get out. They're in the place of the dead, but uh, no access to this world. Uh, We read this, for instance, in, let me show you, uh, 2 Peter, the apostle Peter. When he's thinking back about this, he's talking about other things. He's saying, you know, God holds people accountable. And then he just like throws out an illustration. (laughs) He says, um, for if God did not spare Angels, when they sinned, there's only one time in the Old Testament where you have angels, plural, sinning, transgressing, and it's this Genesis 6, no other place. So it can't be anything else. And he committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept there until the judgment. And then he talks about Noah. So he clearly has this moment. So these bad guys are, are stuck sort of, you might say, in the underworld, the place of the dead, okay? They're stuck there. Other ones are not. For instance, Satan is cast to the underworld. He still has access to this world, doesn't he? In fact, he's called the God of this world, even though he's in the place of the dead, but he has access to our world as we, <clears throat> as we understand it here. Israel is ordered to wipe them out. 
um, we see these guys. Um, there's some Old Testament vocabulary. Like I said, um, Nephilim is the word that's used here. Um, but there's Old Testament um, language that's used to refer to these different giant clans because there's different clans. Some of them live in this area, some in that area, and they're, and they're told to wipe those particular clans out. But the, the sort of overarching umbrella terminology for these giant clans is the Rephaim. The Rephaim are the umbrella group, because there's some are called the Zamzumim, the Anakim, the Nephilim. Based on where they live, people call them different things, okay? But the umbrella term is the Rephaim. So <clears throat> here's the question. Look at how the, New, the Old Testament authors, when they spoke of Okay, eventually all these Rephaim get destroyed. David wipes out the final one. We talked about that. Um, where are they? Well, here's how the Old Testament writers thought about it. Isaiah chapter 26, verse 14. <clears throat> we read, um, they are dead. They will not live. They are, now the English is shades. I have no idea why it's translated shades. That's not even really an English word that means much to us at all. I have highlighted the word right there. You can see it, if you can see that in the blue down there. The word is Rephaim. They are dead, they're not alive. The Rephaim, they will not rise to end you have visited with destruction. Let me go to another place. That was Isaiah 26. This is Isaiah 14. Similarly, Sheol, that's the place of the grave, place of the dead, um, this is a statement made about someone who's going to die, an evil person. And the author is saying, guess who's going to meet you in Sheol? <laughs> the place that Sheol beneath is stirred up to meet you when you come. It rouses the, and again, English word is shades, but that's, it's the Rephaim. They're going to, Israel sees the, the Rephaim as even when they're dead, they're spiritual beings, they're in Sheol, but again, they're not like that group who was chained. They're kind of more like Satan, who has access still to our own world. I'll give you some other examples, just so you can see this is not <clears throat> just a cherry-picking one concept or another. Psalm 88 do you work wonders for the dead? Do, and again, it, it, it translates it departed. It's sort of hiding the concept in our English translation. It's Rephaim. Do the Rephaim rise up to praise you? Finally, let me go to even the book of Proverbs. Stolen water is sweet. This is Proverbs 9.18. And bread eaten in secret is pleasant, but he does not know that the Rephaim are there. And her guests are in the depths of Sheol. So where are the disembodied spirits of these giant clan members, these beings who had a supernatural origin story, who are malevolent? <clears throat> where are they? <clears throat> and what we learn is that there's these frightening, malevolent, disembodied spirits that begin with the supernatural origin story and are feared by humans because that's what's constantly in here. Ooh, guess who, guess who you're going to meet? 
in the afterworld, the Rephaim, <laughs> right? They're scary. <clears throat> Who are they? The demons we encounter in the New Testament, it's these guys, according to every Jewish tradition. And there's many Jewish traditions leading up to the first century. They had unanimity on, a, on what's the origin story of demons. It's the disembodied spirits of these beings who had a supernatural origin and are malevolent and are set on the destruction. <clears throat> this is the consistent Jewish understanding of who they are. And New Testament authors, Jewish authors, they believed this as well. Let me, let me show you a little, some kind of hints that, that they assumed this to be true. Um, New Testament authors, do you know what they call demons more than anything else? An unclean spirit. Okay, that's a, that's a weird, um, ask yourself this, what is one of the main categories of uncleanness in Levitical law? Forbidden mixture. Don't mix cotton and this. Don't mix your field, these two kinds of seeds. Don't mix with people of other faiths. Don't. Uncleanness, what makes you unclean, a big category in, in Levitical law is a forbidden mixture. Well, that would make sense if that's what you thought of demons. They're the result of a forbidden mixture. Or the um, Dead Sea Scrolls, Jewish Qumran community, all of their texts, when they talk about demons, guess what phrase they use? It's not unclean spirits, bastard spirits. Well, because that's what they are. <clears throat> Another question, you ever wonder this? Why is it that in the, in the gospel accounts, and in fact, still in our world today, why are demons always seeking embodiment? Huh, you ever think about that? Why are they seeking to reside in a body? The gods of the nations never tried that. Principalities, powers, rulers of the air, they never did that. They wouldn't lower themselves to that. <laughs> but these beings seek, I would suggest, re-embodiment is what is going on there. <clears throat> so the principalities and the powers, the gods of the nation, they're different from this group of bad guys. Demons are derivative from one group of the sons of God, according to scripture. Now, it's not necessary that we really have to, I have to distinguish, okay, if this is going on, is that a demon or is it one of the principalities and power? It, it doesn't matter. <laughs> but you just need to know who the players are, okay? But again, we don't need to make sense of it all. This must be responsible for that or that. So that's not what's important, but we do want to know who the players are. So demons in the underworld, the place of the dead, can engage in this world, especially when solicited. I have a sign <clears throat> on my front door. Guess what it says? No solicitation, right? I do not want people knocking on my door trying to sell me things, right? <clears throat> There's no sign on the under realm, no solicitation. In fact, there's a sign that says, please solicit, knock on the door. What are examples of solicitation? Well, it can go under numerous different occult practices, animism, cold reading, warm reading, divination, necromancy, 
parapsychology, psychic, Satanism, sorcery, spiritism, Wicca, astrology, fortune-telling, all of those things. Occult practices, most often occult practices, not cult, occult practices, are most often attempts to gain secret, forbidden information. That's the promise, anyway. Or to achieve some kind of spiritual power or control through some sort of supernatural means. And typically, the being that is solicited promises something great. Oh, you're going to have something no one else has. You'll have extreme power. You're going to be the benefactor. You're going to win in this relationship here. I'm here to serve you, <laughs> is the promise that is made. False promises. This is why there is a prohibition in Scripture. Let me go to Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy chapter 18 Verse 10, this is saying to Israel, when you get into the land of Canaan that I have expelled everyone else, else out from, when you get there, he says, there shall not be found among you anyone who burns his son or daughter as an offering. Anyone who practices divination, tells fortunes, interprets omens, or a sorcerer, or a charmer, or a medium, or a necromancer, or one who inquires of <clears throat> the dead. Now, here's, here's the point. God doesn't make commands that you can't do. There's no command in the Bible like, hey, don't fly. Like, you don't, don't jump off the roof, you know, try to fly. Well, thanks, I can't do that anyway, right? He makes commands for things that you can do. The spiritual world is very real. Soliciting dark powers is a actual real thing. That's why he says, do not do it. And of course, the question becomes, oh, he must be holding out on us. Remember, that's what Eve believed <laughs> on page three of the Bible. Oh, God says don't because it must be fun. And he goes, no. Don't do it because it is destructive. So what believers are told is the only way you access the spiritual world is through the Holy Spirit. That is the one door you knock on. You do not knock on any other door. That's why scripture says we pray in the power of the spirit or in the name of Jesus to God. Why do we do that? because there's only one door that you know who's behind it, and it's not going to be a lion who devours you. <laughs> there's only one access point to the spiritual world. Let me put it this way. Let's suppose there are, let's suppose there are a million evil spirits. I have no idea how many there are. Let's suppose there are a million, and there's one Holy Spirit. If you randomly try to access the spiritual world, your chance of getting the Holy Spirit, if you're a mathematician... It's one in a million. Do you get the point? It's dangerous. That's why God says, steer away. Do not toy with it. This is why I tell people, I know people who have tarot cards in their home 
I think you are knocking on a door that you do not know what is behind it. If you do astrology and you believe that something other than the most high God has, has control over what happens to your tomorrow, you are knocking on a door that you have no idea what is behind it, I promise you. And as, 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 as a pastor, I would say to you, throw those things away. Do not get close to them. Steer away from those things. It will bring darkness into your life. It will promise good. It will bring absolute darkness into your life. Now, <clears throat> you might have an objection. Yes, but I'll test. I'll test it. I will assess it to know if it's a good thing or if it's a bad spirit, right? I have, I have that ability. Well, Paul's already way before you. <clears throat> 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 14, we read this. <clears throat> He's talking about there are people who are deceitful, you know, con artists. And he says, and no wonder, for even Satan, that, that original rebel on page three, even Satan himself disguises himself as what? What's the language that's used? Oh, an angel of light. That sounds beautiful, doesn't it? Doesn't that sound attractive? And if you saw that, you'd go, oh, but it was good because it made me feel good. It was positive and it made it encouraged me and, and it told me good things. So it must be of God. Really? <laughs> Have you never met a con artist before? That's what the dark powers are. And they're brilliant at it. They've been around so long. They're much smarter than you and I are. I do not have the ability, neither do you, to <clears throat> discern every single spiritual encounter I have on my own. Now, I'm told to test the spirits, Paul says, because there are many spirits, he says, that are not from God. So you have to, you have to test them. But he says, but don't go knocking on the door. Only the one <clears throat> that is given by God himself. Okay. What is their relationship to us as believers? Meaning like what kind of interaction? I'm not knocking on their doors. I'm not soliciting them, that world. <clears throat> but as a believer, let me give you just a couple. Uh, I'm not going to look them all up. I'll give you the scriptural reference. We're told um, they plot schemes against us, Ephesians 6.10. We're told... I'm speaking of the entire group altogether. I don't know who's doing it. <laughs> they accuse Revelation 12, 7. They promote rebellion, our own, us to rebel, Genesis 3, 1. They tempt us to sin, Ephesians 2, 1. They persecute, Revelation 12, 13. They prevent service, 1 Thessalonians 2.18. They disrupt the church. 2 Corinthians 10. <clears throat> I am going to go to this next one, though. Because this has some direct implications into the series that we're looking at. <clears throat> they teach falsehoods. False ideas. Dangerous ideas. Uh, take a look at Galatians chapter 1, verse 6. 
Paul writes to the church in Galatia, and he says, I'm astonished that you're so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. Now listen to this. But even if we or a supernatural being from the unseen realm, even if an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preached to you, let him be accursed, he says. That's strong language there, isn't it? Apparently in Paul's mind, it's possible you could have a supernatural experience with a divine being that seems to be an angel from heaven. That seems to be in the realm of possibility in Paul's mind that that could happen. What's interesting is when we get to some of the world religions, guess what some of their origin stories involve? Right here, just what Paul predicted. Oh, supernatural being showed up and gave me this new information. See, here's what I would say to you. You can have spiritual experiences that are real, but not true. Do you get the difference? You can have a real experience. You really felt this way and saw this and it's real, (laughs) but it wasn't true, meaning it was deceptive. Your ability to interpret it was not accurate. It really happened, but it wasn't truthful. Does that make sense? In spiritual experiences, seek to discern the difference. What's the difference between real and true? And do not confuse those. The enemy tries to confuse you to say, but you really had it, so it must be true. That's absurd. But yet we buy that so often. So other questions. Can a a Christian be possessed by a demon? I'm assuming that word possessed meanings um, owned um, as opposed to harassed. No, if you are a follower of Jesus, you cannot be owned by another supernatural being because you're owned by God. You can be harassed. You can give a foothold for some supernatural being in your life. You can solicit them or through some sort of sin that you're involved in or some sort of rebellion that you're involved in, you can give way for them in your life, but they cannot own you if you're owned by the Spirit of God, by the Holy Spirit. So what are all of these principalities and powers and demons? Like what's their, what are they doing? What's their playbook? Well, we're not given a playbook. But here's what I would say. We're not given a playbook, but we're given patterns. There's no playbook for the dark, unseen realm to know exactly here's how they're going to come at you. You you don't know that. They're not that dumb to leave that book laying around. But we can observe patterns. What are patterns of things that they have done? If you, in fact, if you even want to go back, here's, here's sort of good exercise. If you remember last week when we looked at the rebellious sons of God, Psalm 82, a bunch of patterns in there. 
Go back and read Psalm 82 and try to write down, what are some of the patterns I'm seeing from the dark spiritual world? And how might that manifest in my particular life, given my own weaknesses, proclivities, temptations, and so on and so forth? It's a good exercise to do. But here's what I would say overall, pattern-wise. It's not a playbook. Anything that is anti-human... Um, do you remember the statement that was made to Israel before they said, hey, don't do necromancy and blah, blah, blah. Remember the first thing was it says, don't offer your little infants. Don't kill them. Abortion. Uh, now, we're really good at, again, self-destroying, self-destruction. We're great at it. The dark powers like to speed that up. Anything that you ever see that is anti-human, that is self-degrading. Self-degradation, self-mutilation. Yep. Um, human eradication. You're following a philosophy which, which has this as one of its core tenets. Ah, oh, we need to reduce the human population. Guess what? Yep. <laughs> Remember, we have a God who said, be fruitful, fill the earth. What is the opposite of it going to be? You guys, you guys are a blemish on the earth. You need to self-eradicate. <clears throat> Sexual transgressions. Yep. Drug use that open you up to altered states of consciousness. Um, the ancient Jewish view of what happened when the sons of God came and the daughters of men and they produced these supernatural beings, you know, the, the Nephilim, what the Jew, ancient Jews said was when the sons of God came, they taught four things. This is the Jewish understanding. You can find this in various different Jewish books. Astrology, taught us bloodshed, how to kill each other better, more efficiently, sexual transgression, and mind-expanding drugs. The ancient Jewish people said these are the four things that those rebellious sons of God helped us get better at. Isn't that weird? Astrology, bloodshed, sexual transgression, mind-expanding drugs. For Christians, I would say, sometimes it's just distraction and ineffectiveness. That's a great way for them to win with us, just to distract you, to make you ineffective at what has God called you to do in, in this season of life right now? Well, if you could just get distracted and be ineffective, it's fantastic. That's a win. That's a W right there. Another question we need to ask is, do we need to fear? Should we live fearful? My goodness, Brent, you painted a pretty dark picture tonight, right? Like, holy smoke. Um, I, I'm freaking out. I don't want to go outside, you know, you know, the witching hour. I'm not leaving my house at night anymore, and I'm just... Um, <clears throat> here's what I would say to you. I'm going to show you a couple different <clears throat> verses here. <clears throat> if... If you realize the incomparable authority that Jesus of Nazareth has, 
Remember Matthew 28, we looked at it last week. He says, all authority in the unseen realm and the seen realm, I got it, okay? If, given that, and if you've hidden your life, as Colossians 3, 3 says, for you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. You get the double protection there. Your life is with Christ in God. You are utterly protected. If that is true, then you can also have this sort of confidence. 1 John 4, 4. Little children, you are from God and have overcome them. And by them are the dark spiritual powers and that sort of thing. Why? For he who is in you, he is so much greater than the one who's in the world. And if you live in a place of fear, maybe this is something that you have to wash your brain in every single day. I have died. I am with Christ in God. And the one who is in me, the spirit, he's so much greater than the one who is in the world. The spirit of Christ has all authority. There's not one shred of authority that he lacks that he's still trying to pull together. He has it all. Final question. So did the dark powers think they can actually win? (laughs) Why are they fighting unless they think they can win? I only fight when I know I can win typically if my life's on the line or something like like that. Why are they fighting? Well, here's a question we have to ask. When will Christ return and judge the world and set everything right? He tells us we don't know. Okay, so that's not the right way to frame it. How about this? What has to take place first? I don't know when, but what has to take place first? Well, fortunately, Paul also preceded us in this question. He's asked the same question. Romans chapter 11, verse 25, he's speaking of the great consummation when, when Christ returns, everything is mopped up. Evil is done away with. And he says, you know what has to take place first? He says, As, lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, meaning how it's all going to happen. Brothers, a partial hardening has come upon Israel. Until what? Until the fullness of the Gentiles or the nations has come in. The fullness of the Gentiles. What he means is once I get the, the Gentiles, how many is that? I don't know. He didn't tell me. He's got something. He's got a number in his head or some concept in his head. Whenever the fullness of the Gentiles comes in, that's when Christ <clears throat> returns. So again, do they think they can win? No. All they are attempting to do is forestall a necessary end. If they can kick the can down the road a little bit, it extends their life. So what causes their kingdom to shrink and God's kingdom to grow so that they can't kick the can down the road anymore? What causes their kingdom to shrink is losing members. (laughs) What causes the kingdom of God to grow gaining those members. Their goal, delay discipleship and evangelism. 
If they can delay discipleship and evangelism, it extends their time. And they have another day. (laughs) They've got a little bit. They're aware it's coming, but that delays it. So then we have to say, okay, do I know their plan? Well, not entirely, but I I know they're trying to delay that. If they know, and they do, that once the fullness of the Gentiles comes in, it's over. What do you suppose they really do not want to happen? The fullness of the Gentiles coming in. What do we need to be focused on? The fullness of the Gentiles coming in. Discipleship and evangelism. That's what we need to be focused on. Whatever that looks like for each one of us, and we're all hardwired differently and gifted differently. As we transition to communion, I want to read a verse for you from Revelation chapter 12. It's speaking of that everything's been wrapped up, okay? Christ has come, and this is what we're told in Revelation chapter 12, verse 11, and they, that's us, who have attached ourselves to the person of Jesus who has all authority and we're buried to self, dead to self with him. They who have conquered him, he's talking about Satan in the context, the great one of evil, that first rebel. How do they conquer him? Two things, by the blood of the lamb, that's Jesus' sacrifice, and the word of their testimony, for they love not their lives even unto death. I love that language. How did they conquer? The blood of Jesus and the word of their testimony. And I go there because, do you realize that's what we're doing when we do this? This symbolizes the blood of the lamb. And we're told every time we do it, we proclaim, that is, we make a testimony. We're, We're sticking the flag in the ground and saying, God's acted in the world through Christ. He's reclaiming the nations. I'm, I get to be a part of it. I'm brought into the family. That's what we do when we celebrate communion. So if you have your, your elements, would you please stand with me? And I want us to do that. I want us to reflect on the blood of the lamb, sacrifice of Jesus on the cross, <clears throat> setting me right, removing death from my ultimate story and making a testimony about this great story that I get to be a part of, that God has invited me into, amen? On the night that Christ was betrayed, he, he took bread and he broke it. And he says, this bread's my body and it's broken for you. Take and eat. In the same way after dinner, he took a cup and he said, this is my blood and a new covenant. That is a new way to engage with the most high God. Take and drink. Paul says, every single time you do this, we proclaim, we testify (laughs) to the Lord's death and that he's coming back and he's going to wipe it all up. Amen. Amen. (laughs) Hey, a benediction as you go. Romans 11, 33 and 36. Oh, the depth and the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments. 
How inscrutable his ways. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Amen. Love being with you guys. Thanks for pressing in. Thanks for loving Jesus. I'll see you guys next Wednesday. Have a good week.